the International Buzz podcast brought to you by WordBee, makers of the all-in-one translation management system and CAT tool that's trusted by some of the world's largest organizations. I'm your host, Robert Rogge. Uh, my co-host, Tanya Falconer, can't be on the show today, uh, but we do miss her so. Uh, before we get started, uh, the podcast is uh, getting pretty close to 10,000 listens, which is kind of a big milestone for us. Um, so if you like the podcast and you listen to it, uh, if you can give it a give it a share uh, on LinkedIn or, or elsewhere. Jeff in Cincinnati, uh, I see you in the stats. Uh, if you want to share it, uh, that would also be nice. Yeah, so let's all, um, if you want to, share the podcast and let's see if we can get to 10,000 listens. So our guest today is uh, Kirill Soloviev. Kirill is the founder and CEO of Content Quo. Uh, it's a recent addition to the language technology space. Uh, specifically, Content Quo is a platform for measuring language quality of vendors and MT engines, collecting that data in one place, and then using it to make intelligent decisions about vendors or improve your MT output. Content Quo is used as an integration with WordBee for some high-profile clients in the gaming sector. Uh, so welcome to the show, Kirill. Uh, thanks for having me, Robert, and hello, everyone. It's a pleasure to be on the WordBee podcast. Cool. Uh, it's our pleasure, too. Did I get a good intro there of Content Quo um, in a nutshell? Pretty much so, Robert. So what I usually like to say is, uh, yeah, it's kind of important that we talk about quality and measuring quality, but that's kind of a tool, right? That's not the end goal in itself. So maybe the first comment I'll, I'll provide here is why companies actually do that. There are typically three reasons. Number one, of course, they want to reduce the risk, and especially for language service providers, they want to reduce the risk of their customers going away or turning because of those pesky translation quality problems. Number two reason why companies actually start managing translation quality systematically is because they want to reduce their costs, right? And some people say that, you know, managing and measuring quality is expensive, but try not measuring that and see how that looks like for your company. I dare you. Uh, and of course, number three, uh, this is kind of more pragmatic and down to earth. Uh, people want to get better performance from their linguists, whether they are in-house or freelance. And of course, nowadays, also from their neural machine translation engine. So those three would probably top our list of the most common reasons or benefits of why companies start with translation quality management in the first place. And then the rest is a bit of strategy and a bit of tactics mixed up. Right. So that, that's interesting, uh, your second point about reducing costs, because it, it does sound to me like it would be expensive. Uh, of, of course, there are benefits. If you're a large organization and, and you're getting into, um, you know, serious uh, quality, you know, quality assessment, can you do the, some of the math here? Um, do, you, do you have some, some numbers or some hypothetical numbers that would explain um, how, the, how the savings works? Absolutely. And we do actually or quite a lot of this when we talk to, to prospects and then with customers as well when we have them on board. So we help them highlight the return of investment on translation quality management as a practice or as a program internally in their organizations. Um, I think one of the most typical ways uh, companies get started with translation quality those days is by pulling out the trusted Microsoft Excel or Google Docs, perhaps, and starting to use that in order to you know, collect some of the data, get feedback of some of their translations they have been doing, and so on and so forth. 
Now, this all works fine and dandy at the early stage when people are just, you know, experimenting and maybe doing this once per week or so. But once they start really getting the ball rolling and the amount of data, the amount of measurements you do is actually critical for a successful translation quality program. This is where the problems start creeping in because you see Excel and spreadsheets were never designed for managing translation quality at scale. In fact, they were not specifically designed for most of the tasks that organizations do around translations. So this is where the overheads really start hitting them up. On one hand side, they might already start to see some visibility into their metrics, but usually they can't even do that. The process becomes very hard to run, to continue, and companies get discouraged. Um, they feel it's too much pain to manage quality with a data-driven process, right? And at this point, they're often on the verge of abandoning this idea, which honestly is very helpful. But this is where we usually can see that just by replacing Microsoft Excel with a solution that's purpose-built for that, they get lots of savings. So the amount of manual overhead that goes into powering an Excel-based translation quality program is staggering. So um, I was just talking to a customer um, yesterday, and they do like 2,000 measurements per month. That's a lot of data coming in. Can you imagine that for every single measurement, uh, they would spend up to one hour, and that's 2,000 hours per month, mind you, just to get the assessments done and the quality data coming in. That's crazy, right? So that's the overhead that can be removed. This is the potential for huge operating cost savings, especially for larger organizations that want or rather need to do quality at scale. And so what are the alternatives? So like if you're not going to take a data-driven approach, um, what do the other approaches look like? Uh, and what are the pros and cons of those other approaches? Great question. Uh, I think the most popular alternative is what I would call uh, set it and forget it. And this actually surprisingly common in this industry. I was just talking uh, about this uh, with a uh, colleague yesterday. And there's this funny thing, right? When organizations hire a new translation supplier, let's assume this is a freelance linguist, they often put lots of effort in qualifying her at this very early stage of onboarding. They test, they scrutinize their CVs, and so on and so forth, right? And they feel this is an alternative for, you know, not managing the quality after the translator has been board, brought on board. But nothing can be further from truth. Um, just to give you an example, if any of you guys work in larger corporations, you're probably very familiar with the performance review processes. You might have heard terms like OKR, 360 degrees feedback, and so on and so forth. So corporations know very well that for their staff, they have to monitor the performance continuously and not just during the point of hire, right? Not just during the hiring process. Then the question that I asked yesterday was, okay, why does the translation industry think that uh, screening a person at the point they're brought into a translation project and then never giving them feedback can be a viable alternative, right? And the reality, of course, it's not a viable alternative. So you have to do it constantly. Uh, and it's more about, you know, getting uh, to grips with this realization. 
there is no silver bullet. There is no alternative to not managing quality. Just about how efficient you do this and what are the risks you put at stake for your organization if you don't do that. Right, right. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting because what what I'm thinking of uh, here is, I mean, I, I have a lot of thoughts, but one of the things I'm thinking about is trust. Um, and I, I I think that a lot of relationships between you know people and and uh, and provider relationships are 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 built on trust. Um, and I and I think what we're saying here is that at scale, um, that I think we're, what we're saying is that trust doesn't scale. Uh, so as you get bigger and bigger. Um, it, that's, that's becoming harder and harder to, to just rely on trust. But, uh, at the same time with performance reviews, like I, I know that like in companies, there, there are some companies that have very controversial performance reviews and some people think that they are counterproductive. So like, but here, but here, I, I think the performance review comparison is, I, I don't know if it's the best comparison because, you know, we're, we're, I, I, Correct me if I'm wrong, but in the, the kind of processes that you're suggesting, the the review is is basically anonymous. It's you're reviewing the segment and you're reviewing the actual work, and you're not you know necessarily reviewing a person or or know who they were or which vendor it was. Uh, great points, Robert. So let me try and address uh, them all in sequence. First, I agree that at some point, uh, indeed, like I think we have a crisis of trust in this industry. It's just you know most people might not face it yet but they will. Um, and it's especially visible once the operations start to grow and the production process starts to scale, right? This is where you bring in first automation for the core things. And this is what Word B does in an excellent fashion. But you know, once you've done that, you're looking for more ways to kind of depend a little bit less on trust and depend a little bit more on process uh, and data. This is where you'll start to look next, right? So how can I build trust into the quality of my translation at scale without resorting to trust-only methods. And the bit on the performance reviews, I, I did agree. I used to work in a corporation before starting my own business and co-founding Content Club. And it used to be very much focused on the, on the individual, right? Uh, I think in this regard, the translation industry and specifically the quality programs that we see you know, running at our customer site, they're actually better in this regard they focus more on the translation itself and why that might need some improvement as opposed to trying to make that really personal and make the translator feel bad about it. So in this sense, this data-driven approach to translation quality is a bit more sensible than indeed what some of um, you know, other types of companies do in their performance review process. I actually like that better. Right, right. And so what are, what are some of the, for, for companies that are looking to, um, you know, implement uh, kind of like formal uh, language quality assessments, what are some of the best practices for uh, deploying that? Um, I think one of the first questions to ask yourself is, okay, what problem related to vendor quality or machine quality, machine translation quality or just you know, language quality in general are you trying to solve? Where is your key pain point? What, what part of the process um, has negative impact for your multilingual content, either for your relationships with your clients, if you're an LSP, or with your companies, with your employers' relationship with its customers and the readers of your content, if you are part of a localization department? So figuring out what's broken 
it's pretty much always the best way to get started on any project, and quality is not an exception. I'll just give a couple of examples here. Uh, what are the things that typically go wrong, right? Where quality processes need fixing a lot of the time. I think number one in this list are the regular uh, quality audits, right? We want to know whether we are doing great translation, average translation, or poor translation, right? So lack of transparency is the key problem here. And the way to answering that is, well, you need to actually assess it, right? Get started there, get some data and figure out where you stand. Uh, number two, this is also something we see frequently. It's difficult to recruit new linguists, especially for LSPs, but also sometimes for localization departments that work with lots of individual suppliers. So uh, how can I screen the translator candidates I have and choose the best supplier for my project? Uh, for instance, we've been running uh, a huge effort uh, for one of our government customers last year where they were needing to select over 1,000 translation suppliers in a matter of just about four weeks, right? That's clear a pain point that needs solving. And if you're ever in that sort of situation, better have some data or else you can decide clearly. And number three uh, starting points is when your company starts to look at machine translation, that's usually quite difficult, especially with neural. Uh, the, the quality and the output of MT uh, is a bit of a black box kind of thing. You put something in, you never know what you get out. And this is super frustrating. Of course, you want to have the absolute best, but you kind of have no idea. And also, this is very frequently a point where companies turn to translation quality management. They want to demystify, is my MT is actually doing a great job or is it pretty much worthless and where we go from there? Yeah, you know, it, it's funny because like when, when I've uh, been at workshops or conferences um, and I'm, I'm talking with, uh, you know, internationalization managers and, and local managers from pretty, pretty large organizations, I'm, I'm always surprised um, by how important it is for them that the transparency aspect um, and also like who's working on their translations, you know, so like so sometimes you think about a really large company and you think, oh, you know, this company doesn't care who does the work uh, as long as it's done and they have the uh, what, what what's the that that term that's popping up now for the the multilingual language service providers MLV right yeah multilanguage vendors and then you have you know and then it's for these large companies it's filtering down then to other other LSP vendors um, and then sometimes even to another LSP vendor and then to a translator and and I'm always surprised by you know, how these enterprises would like to know that the same translators are generally working on their projects. Um, so I, I think your, your, your point about transparency is, is really interesting. And, and this kind of data is, is, a, is a way to um, at least to access this control um, if, if they're not getting that transparency elsewhere. But then it kind of makes you wonder if, if they, I wonder if that this is a tool also for them to maybe get some more transparency. <laughs> I think it is. And um, a very common problem that I've been dealing with myself, uh, I'm a former director of localization for a software product company, by the way, is once you start localizing your contents into, I don't know, 10 plus languages even, and, you know, most human beings on Earth actually don't know that many languages. Like I personally know two and a half, right? And that's the limit of what I can do. It becomes very difficult because uh, you lose control 
you cannot even read the content that you commission uh, to be translated, right? And this is the very first point where lack of transparency comes into play and hits you hard, especially if you've been scaling your language scope, adding more languages, expanding into new countries. And like you've started from uh, English, US, and Spanish, you're very comfortable with that. But then, you know, the next quarter, um, your CEO comes to you and says, hey, by the way, we're expanding to Japan uh, the next months. Can you please ramp our Japanese localization real quick? And this is where you realize that you need some transparency into what's happening in that localization. And of course, you don't do that by learning a language, right? That's just unrealistic. Um, so this is where data and data-driven approach to translation in general and quality in particular can give you that window, right? That insight of transparency, not even into your translators, right? That might be irrelevant at, you know, at the very early stage, but just in the quality of your translated content. Is it good? Is it bad? What are the things, what are the problems popping up in the output of my translation partners? How can we make it better? So this is the most basic drive for transparency. And we, as an industry working within our own supply chains, we have to go through that language barrier constantly just to figure out what is happening in our own operations. Yeah, that is, that's not something that we often talk about, but the inherent tension of the language industry, I think that's the source of it. Is is just the the basic fact that we the the people that are commissioning work can't verify its its quality and it makes people nervous. Indeed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We we were actually I recorded another podcast today, um, and we talked about uh, back translation flows in the life sciences, uh, which you know, like you're. I don't know how much you know about that, but you're going to translate like from English uh, to French. Or you might translate from English to French one and then do a second one into French and then combine those two into one French and then translate it back into English. Um, and the purpose of that last step is actually just to, you know, primarily to allow the people who commissioned the work to see something about the final output, um, which is, is pretty interesting. So, it's a fascinating process indeed, and uh, it's a very reliable but very expensive way to get mm -hmm. transparency that is appropriate, of course, for the type of risk that life sciences as an industry is facing. But I think for people who are not part of that, there's usually mm -hmm. a simpler way to do it, like a simpler, cheaper alternative, you know, more, most importantly, and that's the data-driven measurement, right? It gives you a similar level of insight without actually having to do this super costly, super lengthy process of back translation and reconciliation that's required in life sciences. But, you know, in other industries that are less regulated, less risky, you can probably deal away without that. And this is where, you know, data-driven comes to the rescue. Right. So, um, like, sh shifting a little bit towards, like, the actions, right, that you can take, so let's say that that an organization um, implements these these new workflows. They implement a new set of tools. Um, they they have a more robust uh, you know more robust processes for for quality assessment. Um, and then they they get all this useful data. Um, what what are some of the beneficial actions that they can take with that data? So like what what can you use the data for, and and how does that connect to other systems? Great question. Uh, I think you've just nailed the key point about translation quality management, Robert. Uh, so just gathering the data on quality is never enough. 
yes, it is a key prerequisite, but measuring the quality of your translation does not change it or improve it per se, contrary to what we might want to believe. So it's imperative you actually uh, use whatever insights you get from your data to fix things. And I think the easiest process that still many organizations in this industry are are finding really difficult is to uh, feed that information back to your translation suppliers and just say, hey, guys, we've actually evaluated the quality of your translation. Try to be objective. We've tried to be impartial to the best of our process ability and budget and so on and so forth. But here are the things that we would like you to review so that your next translation can actually be better and be free of those issues we've encountered so far. So uh, the best teams that we work with at Content Quo, they don't use quality as a uh, weapon to fight their translation suppliers. Instead, they're laser sharp focused on improvement. The data on quality is just an input, but the, the, the feedback loop, the discussion you can have with your translation suppliers, uh, which is very easy to do if they're human with the right tools, a bit more complicated if they're machine suppliers, and we can talk about this later. The conversation itself, the act of sharing feedback systematically and considering that and discussing that and sometimes even arguing about that, what's the correct way to say that? Is it really the best or we can do even better? This is what helps people improve the quality of their translations going forward and never stop doing that because life always throws new challenges, new content, new language pairs, and things like supplier changes for that matter at those organizations. Right. You, you know, I, I guess uh, I, I might add one uh, thing is that we, we did do a panel discussion and uh, I, I can't remember his name, but the fellow from Autodesk. Uh, we we were talking a lot about KPIs and metrics and and how to uh, use those. Um, and they at Autodesk, if I'm not mistaken, have I, it was an excellent uh, excellent conversation that conversation. And uh, and they have uh, metrics that they have written into their SLAs with their vendors. I think um, and they don't use them as a as a hammer per se, like you said. Um, but rather as an incentive, in, you know, with bonuses, like actual bonuses. So like if you meet this, uh, these objectives and if you get this quality, um, then you're going to get some bonuses uh, on top of it. I, I, that, that might also be a, a nice incentive for, to tie in with that data. Absolutely true. And I think this is one of the more powerful ideas that uh, I would love to see more widespread in this industry and, you know, in the field of translation quality management, practitioners in particular. Uh, I wanted to specifically call out uh, Taos, uh, who we are partnering with on our efforts to you know, spread the good word about translation quality. Um, in, in their uh, methodology, uh, which is called Taos TQF, and this is how a bunch of organizations are actually measuring their translation quality, they have a special provision specifically for calling out great pieces of translation. It's called kudos. This is basically a way to offer praise to your linguist, right? Making sure, hey, this is actually awesome. You found a great way to word it. This is so engaging. This will be really nicely perceived by our audience, right? Here's a sum up, right? So this is what they call kudos. And we honestly should see more of that. 
not just using you know uh, quality as a tool to find the bad sides of the story, right? But also to highlight good sides of the story. And the data-driven methodology allows to do that very easily. It's just a slight change of attitude that's required. And I think Autodesk's example uh, is a great illustration of that. Right, right. Oh, that's yeah, that's really interesting. So, so like if we shift gears uh, from the vendor aspect, because I. I mean, it's, it's of course it's an undertaking for any organization, but I, I think we've 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 covered most of the basics with with language quality assessment for for vendors on the MT side. So, like when you're using language quality assessments um, to try to improve the machine translation output, can you give an overview of, of of how organizations can do that? Absolutely. I think to start here, we need to separate um, this challenge into two distinct activities. Uh, Number one would be simply finding out how good or bad your MT is today. And believe me when I say that many organizations still don't have much information about that. Uh, It's difficult to choose an MT engine, even if you only go for one. It's much more difficult if you're trying to really optimize for best quality and pricing and SLAs and so forth. Use a mix of engines in your process. So uh, just figuring out where you stand today, whether the you know output from that engine on that language pair on that type of content or domain is decent or not, that's the first step that most organizations need to take. Right? We need to find uh, a baseline. Right? They need to know where they are today. Now, once that's done, and we can talk a bit about specific methodologies around that because they're different from how you would assess. Um, human translation quality in one part because the volumes of MT are usually much higher and the quality management part needs to be aligned with that. But assuming that's done, uh, the second part is actually figuring out how to improve the engines going forward. And that part is actually not that different from how companies would assess human translation and also involves some very common methodologies and approaches to fix the data feed that into MT engines for training, and then verify that the improvement has indeed happened. Um, So yeah, those two parts, figuring out where you stand today, what the MT gives you right now, and then separately finding out how to fix the parts that are bad, and also how to keep the parts of your MT program, the engines, the language pairs, that are already good, right? This is actually more difficult than it sounds, especially with today's neural engines, because they change on a daily basis, pretty much. And you never know whether they're changing for the better for your particular organization, content types and domains and languages, or are they changing for the worse, right? This is even less predictable than with human vendors, I'm afraid. So the best-in-class organizations that deploy MT, especially at scale, they invest into just continuous assessment of the raw machine translation output to absolutely never miss the moment when MT quality starts either going up, which is great, or perhaps going down, which is where they can raise a red flag and go into improvement mode. That's the typical cadence for that. Right. And so if you have a machine translation workflow where you're, let's say you're starting with NMT uh, and then you're doing post-editing and then you do a review and then you do a quality assessment... Um, like after all of those steps, I'm assuming you can still um, improve your your engine with that final 
with that final quality assessment, right? Or or can you only, or should you only um, be doing that uh, uh, by assessing the raw machine translation output? Uh, great question, and we actually get that that one a lot. So uh, if we kind of lay out the the full spectrum for an MT evaluation program, it's maybe a bit more complex than that. Um, so the earliest things you can actually do to track the engine quality is something called the automatic quality metrics. And I think many people have heard about things like blow scores by now. They're not working as good as they used to, especially for neural, but the idea is the same. There are certain things you can calculate automatically for raw MT output if you have reference translations available. So that's usually the first uh, checkpoint. Once that's done, and you have some very rough idea on where things are going for your engine or engines, uh, this is where companies prefer to go into manual quality evaluation or human-powered quality evaluation of raw output from the MT. So there is no post-editing yet, right? They are looking at the raw, unchanged uh, translations coming straight from the engine. And this is also where this other methodology I've briefly mentioned comes into play. It's called adequacy fluency or accuracy fluency. And it's basically a way to get some uh, human perception of empty quality without spending too much time and too much money on that assessment. Basically, you rate each segment of the empty output on a certain number of scales. This is what allows you to make it quick and get some data that's still useful without spending an arm and a leg to go through thousands of words in a very detailed fashion, right? That's the second layer of defense on the MT quality program. Both are still for raw MT, right? Now, assuming you have post editing later on in the production cycle, you can use number three, which is looking at the post edited translation and at this point, you can, again, go back to the automatic metrics, right? At this point, something like um, edit distance becomes very useful because it's a measure of how much the translation has been changed by a human linguist versus what the MT has originally produced. And those metrics are, again, automatic, very cheap to collect, very useful, right? You can drill down into parts of your post-edited production flow where MT is not performing well, and you can see that people are editing a lot. And finally, once you've isolated that part where MT is kind of requiring too much manual work from your linguist for whatever reason, this is where you proceed to part four, right? Uh, and at that point, you do a detailed assessment of the post-edited MT output was a methodology like Tau's TQF. You annotate the errors, you try to find what exactly has gone wrong in empty output and why did they need to fix it so much. But those four steps are kind of the full spectrum of empty quality evaluation, best practices in 2020. And some companies only have some of them. The most mature have all of them. And it's about deploying them smartly at the right times in your MT program to make the most benefit from all of the data. Right. So if we shifted gears a little bit towards translation memory, when when people uh, do the quality assessment in uh, in content quo, uh, do they also then use that data to um, to make adjustments to the memory itself? Absolutely. And our integrations actually make that very easy. So, for mm-hmm. instance, we can push the you know post edited translations back into Word B 
to have the TMs updated. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes this is critical. Some customers actually prefer not to do that, and for very good reasons. Mm. So they build their process in a way that all the changes to translation are actually done before the evaluation step kicks in. And uh, if that's the case, they would only need to gather the data on the quality to do the evaluation of the assessment itself without fixing at the same time. Mm -hmm. This is more efficient at scale because you can split um, the team members that do that. Maybe you need a senior linguist to fix the translation to the right level of quality required by the customer, but you can potentially have a much more junior linguist doing the evaluation, categorizing the changes that the senior linguist has done, and actually learning how to translate better in process. So quality evaluation, funnily enough, is a way of learning about how to translate better. Right. And so at these organizations that are in different stages of, of development in terms of quality assessment, I suppose that some organizations probably have like a quality, I, I don't know what the popular job title is for that. Like I want to say like quality assurance manager, but it's probably more like linguistic quality officer. Right. <laughs> right? Uh, like, yes. Um, I was just in touch with a, uh, was a person today uh, whose title was chief quality officer. Right. And this is probably as high as it gets especially in larger organizations where quality is, you know, that important to be brought into the C-suite, right? Onto the executive level. Uh, but this is still rare, of course. I think the norm is either having people that are localization quality managers, and this is fairly frequent. And in larger organizations, um, they might have a dedicated unit focused on translation quality only, was usually a director level person running that unit and several localization quality managers or specialists working for them, either in language-specific roles. So a company might have somebody focused on, I don't know, Spanish, Latin America, somebody focused on Japanese, somebody focused on Estonia, uh, or also in non-language-specific capacities, uh, maybe a quality strategist or a quality um, planner or advisor, right? So those tend to be more analytical or workflow-oriented roles rather than, you know, language-specific ones. Right, right. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, there's, you know, there's always trends uh, in every industry with uh, new positions that are popping up all the time. And uh, it, it sounds to me like that'll be a, a common one. I, I think a few years ago, um, you, you started to see, for example, a lot of globalization directors starting to pop up. Right. Um, as companies found that 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 was a, a, a useful sort of position and department to have. Um, and uh, I, I would assume that that having, um, you know, de dedicated uh, people for quality uh, is probably going to be a trend we're going to see. More and more of those. I absolutely agree. Uh, in mm -hmm. fact, this is extremely common in most other industries. Right. And uh, it's kind of surprising that in translation, you know, especially the language part of quality, which is very specific. That's the only thing that's truly our own. Uh, we don't have uh, anything like that, I don't know, in sports analytics, right? We don't have data on language quality. But in translation, we do, and we can have a lot of that. Uh, it's surprising that it took us so long to kind of bring quality of translation to the same level as, let's say, quality of software, right? Where the QIA role is very well understood and defined. Or... I don't know, in manufacturing companies, quality of the production process is also very well understood and managed with data for decades now, right? So link production system and 
Toyota and so on and so forth come to mind. So I think we're just, you know, we're getting mature enough as an industry to uh, finally start having our own translation quality as a profession, I would say, and be on par with honestly the rest of the world on how we treat our business and our industry. All right. Well, it's exciting to see that you're on that mission. Um, and uh, I think a lot of people are excited about Content Quo. I, I, I know that WordBee is uh, is very happy that uh, that we have this integration, and and some of our clients are are very happy. I think as well, uh, both with with of course with WordBee and with with the integration with Content Quo. Um, so congratulations on going on that mission. I, I guess one last question is like, uh, how how long ago did you start Content Quo, and uh, and and what's your story behind getting it started? I haven't talked about this for a while. So actually started uh, almost five years ago and next week, or exactly in one week from now on May the 5th, uh, it will be the fifth anniversary of founding Quo as a company. We have actually brought the product to market two years ago. So in May 2018, so officially we are two years on the market, uh, going on strongly also thanks to some amazing customers and the government and commercial sectors. Some of them use WordBee and we're very happy with that. And the story is, yeah, well, it was early 2015, and I was looking for the next big thing to do in the translation industry. And I realized that it's time for me to make a switch from a corporate career. Uh, I used to be a director of localization uh, for a software company before, as I mentioned, uh, to something that I can truly call my own. And I had an amazing co-founder uh, to help me with that. We're both from the translation industry. He's from the LSP side. I'm from the buyer side. And quite quickly, we realized that there, there's this disconnect around quality. Uh, the people who buy translation and the people who sell or do translation, they don't actually agree <laughs> on what great quality translation is. And it's been very difficult for both of us on different sides of this um, supply chain, right? And so we thought, okay, if nobody fixes that challenge yet, then why not us? This is how we rolled up our sleeves and started to build Content Quo as a product and Content Quo as a company. And today we're very proud to have uh, some of the largest translation organizations in the world benefiting for their translation quality programs with our software solution. Cool. Well, um, congratulations on, on that. And, uh, and it was a good idea. So <laughs> thanks for your support and for WordBee support on the journey. Uh, we definitely do best when we are integrated with a translation management system. Uh, and WordBee is a great partner when we can rely on. Cool. Thank you so much. And uh, th thanks for coming on the show. Uh, thanks for the invitation, Robert, and also for the awesome questions. I really enjoyed it. And thanks to everybody for listening. Have a great day. Yep. Bye-bye, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the International Bus Podcast brought to you by WordBee. To learn more about our translation management system, check out our website at wordbee.com and be sure to subscribe to the podcast for release notifications. Until next time.